The title of this sermon is Jesus Christ, the King Priest. I think perhaps a more um, descriptive title, especially if you're liturgically minded, might be uh, the other side or the other half of Eastertide. Because I think this text brings out a very neglected theme in our Eastertide celebrations. You might even call this the hidden side of Eastertide. Because if you think about our uh, celebration of Eastertide, it generally moves in the direction of uh, Christ, of course, uh, triumphs over death itself. And therefore, as the one who triumphs over death, we naturally find ourselves using language, appropriately so, Jesus like Lord Jesus and King Jesus. And much of our hymnology flows from that, declaring Christ as Lord Jesus and King Jesus. What we don't have developed nearly as much is the comparable side of Eastertide and the victory of of Easter, which is Christ as priest, Christ as intercessor, Christ as advocate. Uh, Think about comparatively how less we preach, pray, talk, sing about uh, priest Jesus, advocate Jesus, intercessor Jesus, as opposed to Lord Jesus and King Jesus. Uh, it might be actually worthwhile uh, to, um, to look at all of our hymnology and choruses and all the rest and see if what would the gospel look like if we had no other evidence but what we sing and we tried to backwardsly reconstruct the gospel from that. Someone said recently, with Charles Wesley, you could probably reconstruct the whole gospel. Thanks be to God for that. But it is something that is worth considering about how we perhaps neglected the doctrine of Christ as priest, advocate, and intercessor, and is that that I want to focus on today. We're in the middle of this series uh, on the book of Hebrews. I've really, uh, I shouldn't say I've enjoyed it myself, it seems weird. I've never preached on Hebrews before, so I'm actually glad to be able to do it. But it has been really helpful to uh, think about this great book and what a gift this is to us and how... Uh, the writer of Hebrews uh, is demonstrating how Christ fulfills, completes, even supersedes and trumps all of the great seven themes of the book of the Old Testament covenant. So he's working his way through this. You know, Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than the prophets, fulfills all the prophets. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the high priest. He is the, fulfills the, the Davidic kingship. He fulfills the law He fulfills the sacrifice. So these great seven building blocks of the Old Testament are all superseded and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is why Hebrews, you might say, drops the bombshell in our text 722 and again in 8, 6, and 7. In fact, we have a better covenant. That's what this is really all, that's what this book is about. We have a better covenant, and it supersedes and renders the earlier covenant obsolete. So in this uh, seven great building blocks, there's a really big theological problem, which you'll be aware of, and certainly Hebrews addresses it more than any other book in the Bible. And that is, is that it's how do you reconcile Christ or the Messiah fulfilling both the priesthood and the kingship? This is the theological problem which this text addresses. Uh, The problem theologically is that, as you know, the Davidic kingship is promised from the line of of Judah, of which Christ comes. Uh, But the Levitical priesthood only comes to the tribe of Levi, of which Christ is not. So how do you reconcile, how can the Messiah be both king and priest? 
The great thing about the Bible on these kind of questions is that God is so far ahead of us. In fact, God inserts a solution 2,000 years before it is needed. That's why I call it advanced planning. Like my idea of advanced planning is working like 30 days in advance. That to me is good, right? But God works in like thousands of years of advanced planning. So if you read Genesis 14, um, you have this, you know, like this five kings against four kings, these, these long names of these kings in battle. You're like, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? It's just another random battle of, you know, middle Bronze Age people fighting over land and over whatever. Why is it in the Bible? And, and Abraham, of course, is not even, doesn't want any part of it, but gets caught up into it because they, they capture his nephew Lot. And so Abraham goes out with 318 soldiers and he rescues his kinmen. And then he comes back. And then suddenly, out of the blue, someone who has no connection to any of these battles, not one of the five kings, not one of the four kings, this man named Melchizedek shows up. And that changes everything. And they had this amazing encounter, which was so unusual. The Jews thought about it for centuries. In fact, our, our text actually mentions six things that they found strange about this Melchizedek encounter. Number one, his name, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. He's also, two, he's king of Salem, which means king of peace, which is also the root for Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the, the, of peace. He also, thirdly, he is called the priest of God Most High, Elohim. It's 28 times used in the Old Testament as a reference to God. Priest of God Most High, out of the blue. Fourthly, he comes with no calling card, no business card. He doesn't have anything, doesn't tell you where he's from, who he is. In the ancient world, you know, if you introduce yourself, you know, I'm so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, we fought in this battle, we did this, we did that, you know, nothing like that. Out of the blue, boom, no calling card, Melchizedek. Fifthly, he brings out bread and wine, a kind of anticipation of the Passover, the Eucharist, all the great verities of the covenant are sealed through bread and wine. And then, of course, as our text develops as well, finally, sixthly, he, Abraham ties 10% of everything to him. Now, this, this is something that God orchestrated, you know, from the very early on, anticipating that this would be needed. And a thousand years later, at the midpoint between Abraham and Christ, um, David uh, is in a similar situation, wanting to celebrate uh, the coronation of a king, Psalm 110. And part of the uh, celebration was to enthrone not only the idea of kingship, but the priestly role of the king, perhaps, in the, in the Messiah. The Messiah would be both king and priest. And David uh, has to reflect about this. And he does this in Psalm 110, which we sung. And David inserts this idea of uh, he's a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So God inserts into the worship of Israel for a thousand years this phrase in the order of Melchizedek. And they worship with that language for a thousand years and use it for the coronation of their kings, use it for anticipation of the Messianic king. And finally, we come to our text in Hebrews 5, and he launches into the theme that we've already introduced. And he does this in Hebrews by introducing two passages, two Messianic passages from the Old Testament, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. 
Now, how many of you know, what are the two most quoted psalms in the New Testament? Did someone say Psalm 2 and Psalm 110? I hope so. They, <laughs> if not, it's good information to have. These are by far the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And he brings them together here. Now, what is so interesting, the first, he starts out in verse, uh, verse uh, my bifocals aren't working, verse 5. And 5, verse 5, you are my son, today I become your father, or today I begotten thee. This is, this is the Psalm 2-7. Now, this is one of the great coronation hymns of the Old Testament. And this is where you have to really remember what's being said here. Because if you go back to the earliest promise about the kingship, we also don't remember this properly. 2 Samuel 7, when God first initiated the, king, the, the kingship under the Davidic line, the very point he's trying to solve, that he's both king and priest. This is Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. In the, in the kingly line, the, the, the Judah line, um, the, the whole conversation between the Lord and David involves two promises in 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 14. The first one we talk about all the time. He says, a descendant will be on your throne forever. You'll never lack a descendant on the throne of David. Now, that becomes quoted in the New Testament when Christ comes. This is something that can only be fulfilled messianically, and we celebrate this quite a bit, that Christ fulfills that, the the Davidic promise. But we also forget the next verse where he says, the second part of the promise to David, and he, the, the king, will be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. So this idea of where God would actually call the king his son and the king would call God his father is a very powerful promise in 2 Samuel 7. So when the king is coronated, when the coronation happens, God says to the king in Psalm 110, you are my son. That fulfills 2 Samuel 7. That's what the king does. The king becomes, in essence, a son of God. And Paul, of course, picks up on this, as do other writers, and makes the point that when Christ is resurrected uh, over the dead, from the dead, this is Eastertide, when Christ is resurrected from the dead, at this point, God says, you are my son. Uh, this is actually an acknowledgement that he is the actual victor over death. He is now Lord over the church, and therefore he's declared, it's, like, it's a coronation. He's now king of the church, Lord of the church, and this is declared by using Psalm 2.7. Now, the Arians, they went off the rails on this point, didn't they? Because they thought, when it says, you're my son, to have begotten thee, this means Christ is created in time. This is why it's so important in your classes, when your professors bring up the distinction between the ontology and economy, that you sit up and take notes very carefully. Ontology refers to how God is in himself. You know, God, without any relationships to us whatsoever, is an ontology, God's being. But there's so many times in Scripture when it speaks about God's relationships to us. Okay, that's God's economy, how he applies the work to us. So in the work of God, in the human race, Christ is declared the Son. He becomes the Son in that sense. He becomes the King, the Lord, because he proved himself through his death and resurrection. In fact, even the same text goes on to say, he learned obedience. Uh, he, all of these texts, all these languages is about Christ 
demonstrating his power and victory in real life situations. In the, in the Bible, it's not enough simply to be declared something. That's an ontological statement. You have to be proven to be that. And Christ proves that in real time, in real history. And we'll also see how this comes out again later on in the passage. So this, uh, this idea of bringing together the priesthood and the, and the, uh, the, the uh, kingship brought together, Psalm 110, your priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It also appears in Zechariah, which we, didn't, we, we had read. It's not quoted in Hebrews. Hebrews doesn't bring it up, probably because everybody knows Psalm 110. This is the most natural place to, to come to. But when he brings this together, he actually points out three ways in which this priesthood, this, the order of Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical order. Uh, first of all, uh, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, verses 6 to 10 of chapter 7. So the very fact that Abraham tithes, he makes a big point, the lesser gives tithes to the greater. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. That's pretty amazing. He, secondly, it's permanent. Uh, 23 to 25, chapter 7. The priest had to sacrifice over and over again. Christ did it once and for all. Their priesthood had to be renewed through birth and rebirth. The priest of Christ is permanent and never fails away. And finally, the verses 26 to 28, the very character of who it is is superior because Christ is without sin. He is perfect. He has the, the imperfectible, the indestructible life. So I want to focus particularly on the second part of this, the permanent priesthood. This is what it says in verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. This is the point I want to really highlight, the intercession of Christ, the permanent intercession of Christ and what it means for us. As we think about Christ uh, like interceding for us or the advocate, you probably think of God on the throne, like praying for us, asking a prayer for you. I'm not saying that's not true. It is true. I'm sure it's true. But it's much more than that. So let's try to understand what is being unfolded here in this passage. He says, he's able to save completely. Now, this is a great Wesleyan point. If you're a Wesleyan, sit up in your pew. Because this is a really important point. The word he uses here, uh, pantales, is the word for complete, absolute salvation, a complete salvation. So he's saying something that happens to Christians through the intercession of Christ, which completes our salvation. What's they call this being made perfect in love? How is that connected to Christ's intercession? What's going on here? In the Reformation, and by the way, we're coming up on the 200th anniversary of the Reformation in a, in a bit, uh, next year, and we are going to have a big celebration. We, are, we praise God for the Reformation. All right? We praise God for the Reformation. Amen? Yeah. Okay, all right. Our uh, challenge, Reformation, is not with the great... Doctrines of the Reformation, we love them all. But the Reformation was like, we'll say you're, you know, you're, you're inside, something inside a house, and you go outside, and you get lost and stray around, and you're outside in the, in the garden somewhere, in the field, and someone says, hey, come back into the house. There's the door. The Reformation's about establishing the door. Justification by faith. 
you know, re receive Christ, the centrality of Christ. That's the door of the gospel. And the Reformation reestablished and showed it with, and shone a light on the door. We could see it. But it's a mistake to make the door the whole thing. That's the problem. That's, that's the Western revivals. We're not against the door. We love the door. <laughs> we just want to go into the house, and there's other things that need to be done and explored and, and renewed in our lives. So when he uses this phrase, this saves completely, being made perfect in love, God is purifying his church, he's saving us completely, it happens amazingly through the intercession of Christ. Now, we think about how on the one hand on the cross it says, you know, it is finished, completed action. Paul says these things like, we have to make up in our flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is the same problem with the, with the economy ontology distinction. We just got to get right. Because even though God's work is completed, the justification, the, the forensic side is at the door. The forensic thing is all done. God saves you. It's a done action. There is all of this actual work of God in our lives where God comes and enters into our lives and one of the challenges, and we'll get this when we get to the ascension of Christ, one of the problems we have with the ascension, which affects how we think about the intercession, is we say, when Christ ascended to heaven, he left here, wherever here was, in Bethany, I guess, he left Bethany, and now he's there at the right hand of the Father. But if he's there, he's not here. So we end up with a, essentially the absence of Christ in our midst because he's there, he's there perhaps even praying for us, but he's still there, he's not here. And Luther rightfully said, when Christ ascends, he ascends from here to everywhere. Yes, he's at the right hand of the Father, but he's also everywhere. He's in our midst. He is in you. You are in Christ. Christ is in us. So the incarnation, Hebrews argues, is the basis of a new kind of intercession. Because God was, in, was, was incarnate through Christ, he entered into the human experience. So Hebrews says, Christ can intercede for your temptations because he himself was tempted. He understands weaknesses because he felt the power of the weakness. He felt all of that. He entered into your experience and he entered into us and now we are in Christ. So we are actually, we are there in Christ as he's interceding and he's in us. He enters into the pain and suffering of the world. I call this the post Paschal sufferings of Christ. We don't have a room for it because we have a static gospel. This is where the Western church, which has emphasized ontology, has emphasized like God is immutable. We say God's immutable. He can't be changed. That's a, a great ontological statement. It's not a very good economic statement because Christ is changed. He's changed through our experience. He enters into your suffering. He is moved by your suffering, your challenges. All that we go through, he is there with us, in us, moving in us. That's why he's the bridge between God and humanity. That's what it means for him to be the intercessor, not that he's simply there or he is there. He's also in our sufferings in the world. He continues to bear it in the world as he enters into the suffering that we experience in the world. The gospel is not just what happened back then. The gospel continues to unfold even to the present, doesn't it? That's part of the power of the gospel. That where otherwise the church becomes merely instrumental, proclaiming what God did then, not realizing what God does now as the gospel continues to unfold in the lives of his church into the world. 
I had an interesting experience the, uh, the day after I became president of Asbury Seminary. I became officially president on July 1st, 2009. And on, on, on July 2nd, 2009, we had the privilege of inviting Ellsworth and Janet Callis over to our home for a meal. Had a great night of time of fellowship and just sharing. And, you know, you can imagine the things will be said, you know, as you pass, he passed the mantle in chapel the day before here. And Janet made an interesting comment. She said, you know, it was amazing waking up this morning. I woke up this morning, I looked across to Ellsworth, and I realized he had gotten 10 years younger. Just like that one day. And Julie, just like that, responded, said, you know, it's amazing. I woke up this morning. I looked at my husband across the pillow, and he had aged 10 years. <laughs> we got a good laugh out of that. But the, there's a lot of truth to that because what happens when you enter into, and you'll have this when you become a pastor, when you enter into the pastorate or into any leadership position that God puts you in, you find yourself bearing the sufferings of your people. New burdens that were never your burdens become your burdens. Things you didn't never care about, now you care about. You, your life becomes an intercessory life. See, this actually is what unlocks ultimately the mystery of prayer, isn't it? That prayer is not simply a technical thing, you know, praying for singing. Or, or ministry can't be reduced to simply doing technical things like preparing sermons, preaching sermons, going to hospital, visiting people. It can't be reduced to that because it's about actually enter, entering into the sufferings of people, entering into the lostness of people. You'll find situations where, you know, a couple in your church is going through a divorce or a very difficult time and you feel the pain of that. You, you weep with them because of the pain of that situation or people that are going through challenges with their children or, or drug abuse or endless challenges. Our world is full of chaos and that chaos rolls through the society and you find yourself bearing it and feeling it. See, that's, that is the power of the intercession of Christ because Christ is in you interceding with you in that pain. He's there. He's not up there only. He is there, yes, but he's also there with you, in you, in that pain. And you are in him because you are also there with him in the right hand of the Father. That's the power of what it means to be in Christ. This is the number one way the Apostle Paul describes the people of God. We are those in Christ. That means the resurrection has profoundly changed our position. We are now those in Christ. And that means that the incarnation not only is about God coming to enter into our pain, but we find ourselves incarnating ourselves, little I, into all kinds of new situations where we enter into ministry. We find ourselves bearing pain and suffering. If you're going into ministry to get a title and a parsonage and a salary, please run out of this building instantly. Because that's not what it's about. It is about entering into the suffering of people. When we got to our first parsonage, it had what looked like crime tape on it because they had, it had been condemned by the city. Our first part was condemned by the city. And they cut through the crime tape, or, not, or what they call it, the, like the do not enter tape, and let us in. And they said to us, trying to comfort us, Tim and Julie, uh, don't, don't feel you know, bad. We've talked to the city, and they've allowed you to occupy the ground floor. <laughs> they also to comfort us. We didn't care. 
We didn't care. I could have been put in a tent in the backyard. It didn't matter because we weren't there to live in a parsonage. We were there for the sake of the gospel. We were there to enter into the pain and suffering of other people and embody the very presence of Christ. And that means sharing not only in his glorious victories of the resurrection, Lord, King, but also we continue to bear in our bodies the sufferings of Christ and his post-Paschal sufferings. That is what real presence means. Ultimately, we come before the table and we talk about Christ being really present. It is not simply a kind of ontological point about where God is because of his omnipresence. It's an economic point. that God is actually present in our sufferings, in our situation, and he calls us to embody the world in that way. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for your eternal intercession on the behalf of your people, that you've eternally entered into our suffering and pain. And we just thank you, Lord, that it's not something that you only bore all on the cross back then, but continue to bear, it continues to expand. The scope of your cross expands and expands, and therefore the, the true victory expands as well. Lord, call us and summon us into this deep mystery, we pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.